We turn to Revelation chapter 3. Last week, we finished working through the Sermon on the Mount. It only took us a year and a half to get through three chapters. So it's not too bad. Um, I'm still in decision-making mode about what's next or when it's next. I know that we're going to do the book of Ephesians next, but uh, I'm not really sure when we're going to start. Maybe next week. Maybe not. But today we are making a pit stop in Revelation 3.19. This is is a passage that I studied some months back that has really stuck with me. I'm sure that I have made mention of it in here. Uh, Some of what I say today will probably sound very familiar. I'm sure that it's influenced a lot of what I've taught over the last year. But, um, But I know that I've not taken this passage and made a sermon out of it. So here we go. Um... I'll read verses 14 to 22, Revelation 3, and that will help us get our context and then we'll focus on verse 19. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is uh, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos gets a vision from Jesus Uh, which is a word from Jesus to give to this church in Laodicea. He says, verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. So in verses 15 to 17, we have a warning. Jesus is speaking to the lukewarm church in Laodicea. He says they're neither hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. And because they are lukewarm, Jesus warns that he will spit them out of his mouth. Uh, Obviously, lukewarmness is not welcome in the kingdom. And the only symptoms of this lukewarmness that he gives us is that their material riches have blinded them to the reality that they are spiritually pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Then in verse 18, Jesus tells us that um, he ch- tells this church at Laodicea what they should do about this. He says they should come to him and buy true riches. He mentions gold refined by fire, which is a picture of saving faith. Uh, it's the way it's pictured in First Peter, chapter one. Uh, he mentions pure garments to cover their shame. 
which is a picture of the garments of Jesus' righteousness which cover our sin. And uh, he mentions salve to anoint their eyes so that they will no longer be spiritually blind. Of course, these things really can't be purchased by them, and that's the contrast that he's trying to draw. They have these material riches that can't purchase for them uh, what they actually need from him. These things are a gift of God's grace. It reminds me of that song that we sing around here, Come Ye Sinners, and the, uh, the second verse of that song goes like this. Again, I won't sing, or you'd be offended. Uh, come ye needy, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings us nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. So, Jesus warns this church in Laodicea that though they are in a church... Their spiritual condition is no better than the spiritual condition of the world. And he then goes on to tell them what they need. um, These resources that only he has. So they must repent of their ways and turn to him to receive the free grace of God. Then in verses 19 to 22, Jesus gives that familiar invitation uh, that you've probably heard before. And essentially he's just inviting them to come to him. And actually in verse 19... He shows us something of his heart in this warning and invitation. It says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And we'll focus on this a little bit more later. It's because he loves them that he warns them. It's because he loves them that he invites them to turn from their worldly ways, from their lukewarm ways, and to come to him. So the context here is really Jesus telling people to turn to him in repentance, if not for the first time, then for the first time in a long time. And there may be those in here today um, whose worldly cares and concerns have blinded you to the true spiritual reality of poverty and uh, blindness and nakedness that you actually have. You need to hear this. Jesus invites you to come to him. He will give you eyes to see and the faith to respond to the truth. He will cover your spiritual nakedness and and cover you with His righteousness uh, so that you too can enjoy the riches of eternal life. That said, this text not only has um, application to the lukewarm, it also has application to those that are already trusting in and walking with Jesus. Um, many of you know and have heard of uh, Martin Luther and, and what he's maybe most famous for is in the 16th century he took uh, what was known as his 95 Theses and he nailed it to the Wittenberg door which was kind of like the town message board uh, where people would post things for all everyone to read um, and his aim was to reform the Roman Catholic Church So his 95 theses were 95 points that he believed uh, were points where the church needed reform. And ultimately, it ended up getting him excommunicated from the church, and that's how the Protestant Reformation started, and we're downstream from that. We're a part of that. That's kind of how we got here. But um, number one of 95 was this. All of the Christian life is to be lived in repentance. 
his burden was that the Roman Catholic Church had fallen into believing that repentance was a one and done thing. Like, uh, once you turn to Jesus that once, you're good. And of course, in one sense, that's true. There is one point of conversion. But his point was, if you had truly turned to Jesus by faith that first time, that would be evidenced in a lifetime of continual repentance because that is the rhythm of the Christian life, a life of uh, continually turning away from your sin and turning back to Him. All of the Christian life is to be lived in repentance. So not only does verse 19 have application for uh, those that are turning to Christ for the first time, it has application for Christians that are seeking to forge ahead in the Christian life. And of course, this is how the this is how Jesus brought the verse to my attention. Um, I was not turning to him for the first time, you guys hope not, a few months ago, but uh, I was turning to him as a maturing Christian in a particularly difficult time, and he used this to bring me great comfort and encouragement um, on the journey, and may it be the same for you. Let's, let's unpack it a little bit. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, So be zealous and repent. When the New Testament uh, talks about Jesus' love for His people, the Greek word that is normally used is agape. Agape love is sacrificial love. So the emphasis in agape love is on the behavior and not on the feelings. This is the love that uh, Jesus had for us in dying on the cross. It did not feel good for Him to die on the cross, but it was sacrifice, it was love, it was uh, agape love, sacrificial love. I talk about this a lot in here because I think it's important, particularly in a culture that emphasizes our feelings so much and puts such a priority on the way that we feel. Um, Agape love is the love that we're called to imitate in the Christian life. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. This is not concerned with our feelings at all. Um, Really, regardless of how you feel, you can sacrifice yourself. And so that's, agape is is the way that uh, love is normally communicated in the New Testament. That said, um, that is not what is used here. That's agape. And then the one that's used here. Can you guys see that over there? Um, Is phileo. This is sacrificial love. And this is what we'll call familial love. Um... The emphasis here is on the feelings. When, when Jesus says, those whom I love, phileo, the emphasis, he is emphasizing the feelings. It, it means to have affection or passion for someone. It means to have a fondness in the heart. A familial love like a mother has for her kids. So Jesus says, those whom I phileo, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I have a fondness of heart for, I reprove and discipline. You know, uh, the first time I heard this, it was incredibly encouraging to me. And you'll understand more why in a minute. Let's just say I was at a place in my life where I felt 
particularly exposed. As I was working through this passage, um, I see this and I'm going, well, that's encouraging, so I want to I keep going and see what the other words mean in Greek, and I really don't do this very much. But and again, I don't really know how to... I mean, I just use my phone, you know, highlight it in the app and click on it and see what the Greek word is. If you have the free Logos app, you can do the same thing. But um, so I wanted to know what are the words for reprove and discipline? And um, they are... Alegco and Paiduo. This one means expose. This one means educate. Of course, they uh, translate it a certain way, and those translations are not wrong, but I think those words get closer to what the actual meaning is. of the word is. So I just told you that when this comes to my attention, I'm in a place in my life where I feel particularly exposed. Uh, completely exposed is, is more like it, really in two ways. I was uh, overwhelmed with um, personal sin. You guys know the feeling of you get to the boiling point and you feel like you're just about to boil over, be it in a relationship with someone you love or whatever, you're just about to spew anger all over them or, or whatever it is, um, just overwhelmed to the boiling point. And also with personal weakness, like the feeling of, Lord, I don't know that I can do what you've called me to do in this situation. Um, you know the feeling you get in the place where you you feel completely overwhelmed with your capacity for sin or overwhelmed by your incapacity to do what he's called you to do. Love your spouse, make it through a big transition at work, uh, endure the season of suffering that he has you in. Whatever it may be, it's the thought of, I simply don't think I have the strength to do this. So I felt exposed, but in that place... Jesus meets me with this. It's those whom I love that I expose. It's those whom I have deep feelings for, those in my family that I expose. So just at the time when I needed some reassurance and felt like I had fallen off the wagon, uh, Jesus shows up with saying something like, Do not be discouraged. I am the one who is exposing you, and I am exposing you because I love you. So do you feel exposed in uh, personal sin or personal weakness? Jesus could have just left you in your blindness. You know, He could have just left the church at Laodicea in her blindness and and, uh, spiritual nakedness, but He didn't because He loved her. And He doesn't do that for us either. He doesn't leave us in our blindness. Um, He exposes us because He loves us. The next thing I want you to see is that He doesn't just leave us in our exposure. Those whom I love, He says, I expose and educate. And uh, educate is really not a complete enough term. One of the things is I was... I I hate to even say studying Greek because it makes it sound... When I was taking some Greek classes, I'm no Greek scholar. I have a... You know, I'm about like a three-year-old. But... um, one of the things that you find is that 
you know, we often don't have the word to capture uh, one word, and so you need about seven words, or at least an idea, uh, to, to help translate. And this word for educate, uh, <clears throat> paideo, or paideia, it was a word used in the Roman world to explain the process of enculturation that was used to produce the ideal citizen. So the idea the Roman leaders had was that by, by the time a, a person turned 18 years old, uh, they wanted them to be ready to carry on the Roman influence in the world. And everything about their upbringing was a part of this process of transformation um, to, to get them there. Of course, their education was a big part of that. They were all taking the same classes and things like that. But so was everything else about their life. This was paideia. It was this process of enculturation with the end goal of uh, the ideal transformation or, or the transformation into the ideal individual. You know, many other world powers have done the same. A lot of evil world powers. Um, there was a very strict paideia in Hitler's Germany. They, they were uh, flooded with this stuff from the time they came out of the womb until they became young adults so that they would be essentially like robots and, the, and they were brainwashed into this thing. Uh, really, in any communist regime, this is the idea. What do we have to do with them um, to keep producing the ideal citizen for our regime? Now, obviously, Jesus' regime is not an evil regime. It is the glorious regime. But it helps us to understand what he's saying in Revelation 3.19. Uh, he says he exposes those whom he loves, but he exposes us not as an end in and of itself. It's a part of the greater goal. It's a part of his paideia, of, of the paideia of the Lord, of this culture of Christ. He has us in this process of transformation the end goal being that we would be who He made us to be. That we would be more like Him. And our exposure is only a part of this. It is a necessary part of this, but it's only a part of this. He exposes us and educates us. He exposes us to transform us. And it's all because He loves us. Jesus loves us right where we are, but He loves us too much to leave us where we are. And because He loves us, He will continue to expose us and continue to transform us in this culture uh, of Christ. So what do we do with this? Jesus tells us. He says, Those whom I love I expose and educate, so be zealous and repent. You know, this process of education can be um, disorienting, particularly when you feel exposed in your capacity for sin or in, in personal weakness, your just incapacity to navigate the road ahead. But Jesus tells us our response. Number one, we should know that uh, He's exposing us, but that He's the one exposing us, and He's doing it because He loves us. Number two, this exposure is all part of the larger process of our transformation to be more like Him. And number three, Knowing this, no matter where we find ourselves, we should eagerly and passionately repent, zealously repent. You know, repentance is really twofold. Not only is it uh, turning away from sin, it is also turning to Christ. 
And remember that all of the Christian life is to be lived in repentance. You're never going to outgrow your need for this. Our hearts are prone to wander. They, they wander no matter what season of life we're in. And we can often be blind to their wanderings. So, Jesus exposes our hearts. And it's really His grace that He does that to keep us from following um, the natural trajectory, I guess. He exposes us because He loves us. And because He's committed to our continued growth and transformation, of which exposure is a necessary part. Um, He may expose anger and bitterness in your heart. He may expose lust. He may expose passivity or laziness. He he may expose refusal to deal with a present conflict or uh, refusal to move ahead in the way that you know He has called you to go. It may be gossip or greed or pride or selfishness. He may expose you in your total inability in and of yourself to do what He's called you to do and to be who He's called you to be. Uh, Faithful husband or wife or parent or son or daughter, employer, employee, friend, simply a Christian. There are just times we go, I don't don't think I'm cut out for this thing and I'm not sure uh, that I can forge ahead. But we must know that He exposes us because He loves us. And in our exposure, we must turn to Him and embrace this process of transformation that He has us in. It's for our ultimate good. It's so that we will become more like Him. So, um, the place in my life where I have been most consistently exposed is in my marriage. And uh, if you've been married for any amount of time, it's probably been the same for you, and I would tell you it's by design. Uh, I did not come up with this, but I think Paul Tripp says this in his marriage study, something like, God's goal in your marriage is not primarily your happiness, but your sanctification, your growth in godliness. You're becoming more like Jesus. So if you're not married, I don't mean to scare you away from it, um, but uh, because there's really nothing better than a good marriage, but I would also tell you that there might not be anything in this world that is harder to access than a good, rich, consistent, uh, warm, loving marriage. Selfishness is the great enemy of a godly marriage. To achieve the heights that God intends for us in marriage requires total self-abandon. So the assumption then in marriage is that you're regularly going to be exposed in your marriage. Um, The question is, how are you going to respond? Jesus tells us how to respond in our exposure. Be zealous and repent. Turn from your sin and and turn to Him and His ways. But we could be more specific. Let's let's talk specifically about marital conflict. And again, uh, these things apply not just in the confines of marriage to any conflict, um, but... Uh, many of you are married, and so, so what's the natural way we deal with conflict? Anger, uh, harshness, cutting words, nagging, passivity. Don't want to deal with it. Isolation. 
all of these ways have to be repented of. And, and what does it mean to repent? It means to turn from these and turn to Christ and His ways. Well, what does that look like in marriage conflict? Number one, it means uh, being slow to speak. You know, zipping it when you're to the boiling point and you're about to start spewing cutting words and angry thoughts. Um, it looks like being proactive in obedience to walk in these ways. So not retreating into isolation, not passively just hoping it'll fix itself. Um, it looks like sacrifice. It looks like submission. It looks like reconciliation, which is always wanting to pursue that oneness that God intends in our marriage. Not uh, settling for the distance. And, and the distance can grow slowly over time. Uh, it, can, it can last a long time, but not settling for that. It looks like humbling yourself and abandoning yourself at all costs in order to walk in the ways of Christ. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Um, one of the best ways that I know to tell you how to put this into practice in your marriage is to um, make a habit of praying in the middle of conflict together, praying together. Or, um, even before that, some of you just need to learn how to apologize and, and own up to the fact that you were wrong. But... Um, then get to the praying together in conflict. I would tell you that right after the fight is the perfect time. Um, as soon as it just was a blow up, you know, sometime five minutes later after you've stormed off and is, is the perfect time. Uh, and let me just say this. Men, it is your responsibility to lead in this. Ladies, that doesn't mean that you should never initiate prayer uh, at all or, or in a hard time, but it is the man's responsibility to lead. And look, I know that sin is embarrassing, right? It's just embarrassing. The comfort zone is isolation. You would just rather not face anybody, much less your spouse that you just offended, much less God um, in prayer. Sin is hurtful. It would be humiliating to take your spouse's hand and go before God in prayer when you've just made a fool out of yourself. And that's the idea, is that it would be humiliating, that it would be self-abandoning, that it would create in us a deeper humility. It's the most practical way uh, that I know to tell you, not only to defend against the sinful flesh which wants to vomit all over your spouse, um, but also to actively engage in living out the Christian life the way Jesus intends. And let me say too, I realize that for many prayer in the marriage is not a norm uh, it maybe never happens that for Tiffany and I uh, that was the case in in our marriage for you know a long period of time in the beginning and this is actually how prayer in our marriage started was consequent I mean the the conflict and the utter need we can't do this we need help and out of that need of please God help us to do this better than we're doing it um, you pray together there, and it kind of will help cultivate a culture of prayer elsewhere. Maybe your objection uh, in your mind is, you know, I can't face God in the midst of my sin. And I would gently say to you, then you don't understand the riches of His grace. And that is precisely why you would need to put this into practice. 
You need to come before Him when you're most exposed in order that the gospel of free grace that He purchased for you with His blood would be applied to your heart and soul. Only the gospel will ultimately fuel the life uh, that Jesus intends for us to live. But in order for it to fuel us, the gospel needs to overwhelm us. We, we need to be confronted personally and deeply with the gospel for our own sin in our own soul. And the place where you're most primed to be overwhelmed by the gospel is that place where you're exposed. Also, it may not necessarily be a conflict between the two of you that's driven a wedge between the two of you. There are a number of reasons that we drift. Um, but no matter, turn to Christ. Of course, marriage is not the only application for this. Um, one of the other arenas where we consistently get exposed in our lives is in our suffering. You know, our weakness is exposed in our suffering. We don't have the ability... Uh, to do what we're trying to do, but so too is our sin. Because in our suffering, Jesus turns our hearts inside out and we end up seeing a lot of things in our hearts that we did not know were there or didn't remember were there. Um, But He exposes us because He loves us. He exposes us to educate us and to transform us. He exposes us because He wants us to deal with what He shows us. To turn from our sin and to turn to Him. He exposes us because He wants to lead us further into the gospel of His free grace and love which will ultimately empower us to get us home. You know, um, a sermon like this and you probably can't help but feel exposed in some way. Um, Certainly, this passage has done that for me, but I would encourage you that there is no better reminder and picture and grace in the life of the church where the gospel is so clearly presented than in the sacrament of communion and uh, it's communion Sunday. And so um, just know with the clarity that is presented in the gospel of the sacrament Uh, Your sins are forgiven in Christ, and He exposes you because He loves you. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed glad for Your grace. Uh, We we have been exposed and um, don't really like it particularly well, yet it does bring great encouragement, Lord Jesus, to hear from Your own mouth that um, You expose us because You love us. And uh, you're committed to our transformation. So, Lord, encourage us with that and strengthen us with that and, and help us to embrace this process that you have us in. It is uh, counter to what we would naturally put ourselves in. Uh, we don't often understand how to move forward. But, Lord, we trust you. And, and we just ask that you would give us the grace and the strength to endure. Uh, that you would give us uh, the grace to even find joy uh, amidst the toil of our lives. And, And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.